Well, if you were to go to your neighbor, perhaps a non-Christian neighbor who is unfamiliar with religious things, unfamiliar with Christianity, and you were to ask them a verse from the Bible, what verse do you think that they would quote to you? What verse is most known? And I am a firm belief that if you were to ask them, it would be this verse that we will consider this morning. Perhaps you have been in a situation where it's been quoted to you, judge not, lest you yourself be judged. This unbelieving world knows and loves this verse. If this this world could adopt any verse in the Bible as its own, and of course out of context, it would be this verse. Judge not, lest you be judged. Our unbelieving world loves to think that there is no judgment. They love to believe that they will not be judged, are not judged, and no one should judge them. Perhaps no other verse in all the Bible is misunderstood more than this verse. Many will use this verse in the church, not only outside the church, but in the church. To say that, oh, you shouldn't be judging me on how I live my life. You shouldn't be telling me what I should and should not be doing. And for us this morning, there's a few questions I want you to think about. Number one, are we not to judge others? Is Jesus forbidding us from making judgment? Is it wrong to be one who judges? And did Jesus prohibit the making of judgments about people and matters? Are we just to mind our own business and stay out of the business of others? Or are we to judge? Now, John, excuse me, Matthew here in chapter 7 is beginning some, some new content in the Sermon on the Mount. And it's transitioning and Jesus is beginning in this discourse to wrap up the uh, what we know is the Sermon on the Mount. And, and the, these final verses seem somewhat disconnected to what he had been speaking about. It, it seems quite abrupt to go from not being anxious about material possessions to judging others. Uh, from there going on to this verse 6, which seems not quite to fit either. And, and then on to verse 7, where Jesus is, is addressing uh, big asks of God. And throughout this, con- the context seems to be uh, interpersonal relationships with and among others. In other words, the book of Matthew is putting forth the idea that God is not saving individuals, but a people. That God is calling together a community called the church. And so the Sermon on the Mount is within that broader context of relationships. That God is calling us from lives of individuality to lives of corporate togetherness, fellowship, what we might call koinonia. And so we want to understand what Jesus is teaching here in that broader context of the new heaven and new earth that has come in the coming of Jesus Christ. That you and I have not only been saved, but we have been ushered into the kingdom. We are now in a family and we are brothers and sisters and we are to relate to one another. We, and it's a messy relationship and And so Jesus is helping us understand. And so I want you to understand that Jesus' great context here, the context is that of between a brother and a sister. 
between two brothers or two sisters or a brother and sister. In fact, Jesus uses family language throughout this passage to clue us in to the fact he's referring to the community of faith and how we relate to one another. So with that in your mind, I want you to kind of have that in your back of your mind as you, you hear me read Matthew chapter 7. I'm going to begin in verse 1. Jesus says, Judge not that you all be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy. And do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest you trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Let's think about this this morning. Jesus' point is that Christians are to avoid making overly critical judgments of others, but to judge others with right and fair judgment. You see, so many times we read this and we stop at verse 4, we, we read verse 1 and we're, we start to get excited, right? This is a verse I might want to put on my wall at home. Judge not, right? Lest you be judged, right? That makes a good Hallmark card, doesn't it? Um, and that's what we want. We, we, and then we read, oh, yeah, you can't, yeah, don't be messing with people's eyes, right? You got logs in your eyes. And we stop there. But Jesus ends, doesn't he, in verse 5 and says, Look what he says. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will be able to see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And so Jesus here, my argument is that Jesus is calling us to avoid a type of judgmentalism, but he is not prohibiting judgments upon others. In other words, the kind of judgments that Jesus is forbidding is a condemnation of others, uh, a condemnation that only God can declare. And so we want to think about the distinction between biblical judgment, right and fair judgment, and unbiblical worldly judgments to teach us how to judge others rightly. We don't understand. Jesus is discipling us this morning, teaching us how to judge in a biblical way. And he outlines two types of judging that his disciples are to use. There are two types in this passage. Uh, first, we are to judge with discretion. We are to, dis we are to judge with discretion. In verses 1 through 5, Jesus argues a right judgment that we are to use. The right approach to making judgment. Secondly, in verse 6, which seems to be somewhat of a one-off verse, Jesus here says that we are to judge with discernment. In other words, in our inside relationships inside the church, we are to use discretion. And when we deal with those outside the church, we are to use discernment. We are to judge with discernment. 
Well, let's look here at this text. Jesus says that we are to judge with discretion. We are to have a discreet judgment, a guarded judgment, uh, one that is not overly critical. Notice what he says there in verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. The language that Jesus is using here that Matthew uh, lays down in the text for us is, is, the, is the language of a courtroom. To judge, to declare condemnation upon another. The kind of judgment that, that one passes that is conclusive judgment. They can't be saved because they did this. In other words, it's a kind of judgment where we ourselves take the judgment seat that only belongs to God. A judgment in which we declare to be definitive and final. Now, is Jesus saying that all judgment is wrong? Not at all. For you and I judge every day in our lives. Every day we make assessments of those around us. Uh, one author uses a particular illustration when uh, thinking about making judgments in who we will hire to be a babysitter. If we were to hire a babysitter, we make certain judgments, do we not? Uh, we assess their ability to care for our children. If you were to hire a contractor to come over to your house and, and do some work, uh, do some plumbing or do some electrical work or, or to build some cabinets in your home, you're going to use judgment. You're going to decide based on a set of criteria that you've set. But Jesus here isn't saying that all judgment is wrong, but rather making and calling out those who make declarative judgments about one's ultimate place in God's economy. Jesus is saying that our role and responsibility isn't to declare one saved or unsaved, not to make overly critical statements about others, but rather we are to be people who are merciful. In fact, Jesus goes on to say in verse 2 that judgmentalism leads to greater divine judgment. In other words, we need to see the difference between judging others and judgmentalism. Or overly critical of others. Always trying to find fault in others. Always being nitpicky about what others are doing. We're so concerned with others. And, and as Jesus will say to us in this illustration he gives. Sometimes you are so concerned about others. And the reason for that is because you don't want others to be concerned about you. It's a form of deflection. It's a, it's a form of defense. You, you're always inspecting others. You're always complaining about others so that nobody will complain about you. And Jesus here in verse, tw verse 2 gives us a reason why we want to avoid this kind of unbiblical, ungracious, unloving, uh, merciless judgment. Look what he says. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Isn't that, friends, this should, should wake you up this morning. He, he's using a divine passive, you will be judged in this passage. In other words, he's referring to the judgment seat of God that you will face. You want to judge others? Well, just know that you yourself will be judged by God. And when you go, the standard, the word measure there is, we could translate standard. Whatever measurement you use, whatever standard you used 
to judge that person, well, God will use that same standard with you. You know, it's fascinating how our standards are always higher for others than they are for ourselves. We always require more of others than we do of ourselves. And this is what Jesus is exposing. As the Apostle James reminds us in James chapter 2, For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So warning for us as Christians, those who have received forgiveness, those who have received mercy, oh friends, we should be the most merciful people of all those in our community. As the Apostle James would go on in James chapter 4 to say, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks evil or speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judge the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. In other words, you set an authority over the law. He'll go on to say, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Here's the truth that we want to understand from this passage here in Matthew chapter 7 and what James is alluding to. That when we step into the seat of judgment, we are stepping into the seat that only God should sit in. In other words, when we get into the spirit of overcritical, when we get into the spirit of judgmentalism, what Jesus is forbidding here, what we are doing is we are trying to be God in the lives of others in such a way that we don't think that we ourselves will be judged. We want to be people that cultivate mercy because we have received mercy. Well, our standards want to be biblical standards. Parents, do your, do your children know the difference between principle and preference? Do you, do, you, do you understand the difference between principle and preference? Let me give you an example. I'll use a church example because this will get you all fired up this morning. <laughs> we sing in church as a matter of principle. All right. In other words, to sing or not to sing is a matter of principle. The Bible commands us to sing. You ever wonder why you sing in church? It's because God commanded you to sing. Period. It ain't because you want to or because you're good at it. Because God said sing. That's a principle. Style is a matter of preference. Style is a preference. Some of y'all might like to jump up and down. Some of y'all might like to sit down. That's preference. But what happens in our lives is we take preference and make them principles. We do it with our kids. We confuse principles and preferences. I prefer my kid not to do that. But is it based on a principle or just a personal preference? A part of parenting, of course, is growing to learn and know and understand that. I use that illustration because all of us have, have blurred the lines. And so much in our judgmental, we drift into judgmentalism because people are doing things we don't prefer, but it's not based on any principle. And Jesus here is going after those who have confused those two categories. Our judgments are to be right judgments based on principles found in Scripture, not on personal Preferences. We want to we use the, 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 the dividing 
word of God in order to clarify in our lives where is this a matter of preference versus principle? Where am I just being a nitpicker on someone because I don't like what they're wearing or what they're listening to or what they're doing versus a matter of principle? And so Jesus goes on and he says this, listen, if you want to be a physician of the soul, if you want to be an optometrist of the soul, you got to make sure your eyes can see before you start getting into messing with other people's lives. And this is the point I want you to hear. Hear me. This is the principle. Deal with your own greater sin before helping a brother with his lesser sin. In other words, be clear. Jesus is not saying we don't have a responsibility to speak into the lives of those gathered here. Jesus is not saying stay out of other people's business. What he's saying is take care of your own business before you go messing with other people's business. All right. All right. Do you see that, friend? Don't conclude from this passage. Jesus is saying nobody can speak truth into your life because Jesus said don't judge. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, before people speak into your life, they're going to check their own hearts at the door. Notice what Jesus says. He uses an illustration from the wood shop, doesn't he? Jesus would have known these things. He was a carpenter by trade. Jesus uses uh, an illustration from the carpentry uh, field. And, and he comes in and he says, why do you see the speck? Literally, the speck is a, a piece of sawdust. Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye, but you can't see the, or notice the log that is in your own eye? The word log there would have, is literally the word beam, right? Uh, the, the, the beam, that main structure that would have held up the house. Of course, Jesus would have known big, massive beam. He's using a, a kind of foolish picture, isn't he? Intentionally, hyperbole, to, to kind of push forward this idea. You're walking around trying to find little problems in people's lives, all the while you've got this massive beam in your own eye. How, how is it? Notice the parallelism between seeing and noticing. Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log that's in your own eye? Right? How do you miss the forest for the trees? How is it that you're so concerned about this little tiny piece of sawdust when you yourself have this big problem in your life? In other words, deal with your greater sin before helping others with their lesser sin. He goes on in his illustration in verse 4. He says, how can you say to your brother, hey, let me help you out. Let me take that speck out of your own eye when there is a log in your own eye. In other words, your inability to adequately see and assess the situation and truly help somebody. Let's be honest. Would you go to a doctor... To work on your eyes when he himself cannot see. We wouldn't do that. We wouldn't even think about doing that. We wouldn't go to a doctor to have some form of cataract surgery or laser eye surgery where he says, you know, sometimes I just can't quite see very clearly in the morning. Uh, I, surely I'll get my vision back at some point. We'll be like, no, I'm going to leave. See you later. So often in our lives, what we do is we run around dealing with other people's problems without first dealing with our own problems. 
And the reality is, is that we often see other sins better than our own sins. Isn't that true? We can all, some of y'all are masters at finding problems in others, but can't see the glaring problem in your own life. That's what we're, we're, we are masters of that. Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 2. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, everyone who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. And this is why Jesus declares in verse 5, you hypocrite. Now, this is the first time in the Sermon on the Mount. He's used that word hypocrite a number of times. He called the Pharisees hypocrites, a play actors. They were just fakes. They were just playing a part. They were putting a mask on. It was a charade. It was a facade. It wasn't real. It wasn't a reality. They were fakes. And Jesus turns that word on his disciples for the very first time. He doesn't do this often. And he looks at his disciples and say, you're not a disciple of mine if this is how you're going to behave. You're just faking it. Kind of reminds us of Judas, does it not? Who was always, hey man, we could use that money for other things. You see, we are unable to help helpfully deal with other sins if we're not willing to properly deal with our own sins. That's what Jesus is after. He's saying, listen, you're gonna, we need to deal with their sin. Don't, Jesus isn't by any stretch saying that the, the brother with the speck isn't, isn't, doesn't need to be dealt with. But we first got to deal with our own sin. And there is a temptation in all of us to hypocrisy. There is a temptation in all of us to be hypocrites. Perhaps one of the most helpful illustrations of that comes in 2 Samuel. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, there's this glorious scene. David has sinned with Bathsheba. He has rebelled against God. He, he has sentenced the death of Bathsheba's husband. And Nathan, the prophet, comes to me and says, David, let me tell you a story. He begins to tell him a story. And David is enraged. That man must die for his sins. He must die for what he's done. He has rebelled against a good and holy God. And, and Nathan's like, hey, man, the guy I'm talking about is you. You see, so often in our lives, we can be so self-righteous about other sins, but not very righteous concerning our own sins. And Jesus is confronting us in our own hypocrisy that in order to help others, we must learn to deal with our own sin. What sin is in your eye, brother or sister, this morning that is preventing you from rightly assessing the lives of others? Do you see why the Apostle Paul makes such a clear statement about the righteousness of elders and deacons in the life of the church? How, how can you have leaders who can't see? How can a leader lead a group of people, shepherd people, if they themselves are living in unrepented sin? This is why elders must be above reproach. Amen. Living lives of godliness and Christ-likeness in order to adequately assess the souls of those in the congregation. Brother, sister. Do you see that it is your responsibility to guard your own soul so that you can help others follow Jesus? What if 
our congregation had a bunch of folks with logs in their eyes, how would we be of any help to anyone? This is why Paul warned the church in Corinth, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. You see, if you've got a congregation of log-wearing folks that can't see any sin, what happens? Sin doesn't become sin anymore. Everyone lives life their own way and chaos ensues. But as God's people, we want to cultivate not just eyes towards others, but first eyes towards self. We want to know and understand that we can be deceived about our own salvation and we can be deceived about our own spiritual health. This is why receiving and giving godly criticism is so essential in the life of God's people. Because if you yourself are not able to ask those around you, hey, how do you think I'm doing in these areas? Or, hey, I'm struggling. Let me be honest. I'm struggling in these areas. If you're not working on your own heart, then we will become a, a people of judgmentalism and criticism, and we will not be helping anyone. But to make clear, look at what Jesus says again in verse 5. First, he says, take the log out of your own eye. In other words, deal with your sin. Take it to the cross. Lay it at the cross. Work on it. Do, do whatever you got to do. Deal with it. And then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do you see that there is an order to this, but it does not neglect judgmentalism or judging rather? In other words, Jesus isn't saying, hey, we won't deal with other people's sin, but rather there is an order to how we deal with it. Later in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus gives us a, a tremendous passage of how to deal with sin in the church. He says, first go to the brother, then if the brother isn't going to listen to you, then take it to a couple other brothers to encourage the guy along. And well, if he won't listen to those three, we'll then take it to, to the church and let them deal with it, deal with sin. In other words, in the community of faith, we are to deal with sin. We can't let sin perpetuate, all right? So if there is sin in the church, we've got to deal with it. But we have to deal with it in a biblical order. In other words, if I'm going to go to a brother, I first have to check in my own heart. Am I doing this out of spite? Am I, what's my motive in confronting this brother's sin? Am I just trying to you know, one-up him, show him that I'm better than him? Well, what's my motive in making this kind of statements I want to make? We first have to check our own hearts and then learn how to deal properly with the sins of others. The Apostle Paul will say it this way in the church in Corinth, do all things decently and in order. And he doesn't mean just merely in the gathered church, but rather how we deal and work with one another. Brothers and sisters, do you understand that Jesus knows you're coming from a world that is wrong on these matters? Do you understand we live in a culture that defies this very passage? A culture that does not want anyone peering into their life? How many times have you heard it said, or you yourself have said it, you have no right to tell me how to live? How many, right? You got grandkids or kids, you know they've said it to you. You have no authority, you have no right. We live in a world that doesn't want people looking in, but in the church, we want to invite it. Please help me grow in my life. Help me to be more like Jesus. But do it in a way that means the best for me, not the worst. Paul says it this way. 
1 Corinthians chapter 5, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are we not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. In the context of that, he's dealing with the church discipline case. In other words, we are to be people who judge others, but are not judgmental. In other words, we're always doing it from the spirit and motivation of mercy and grace and love. Do you see people in the image of God and you want to see the best for them rather than the worst for them? Well, if that's true, then you're, you're not going to come at them in, in an overcritical way. Friend, how are you tempted to be overly critical of others? Is that, is that an area you struggle with? Constantly critical? You've got an opinion about everyone in your life? Have you found your heart often quick to make judgmental thoughts or statements of others? What's motivating you to do that? Is it so that others won't look at your own life? So that you're always causing people to have attention on others rather than on you? Friends, we live in a culture that is quick to speak and slow to listen. And we need to be people who are slow to speak. Quick to listen, patient with others, seeing the best of others rather than the worst. Friends, seek the Lord this morning. Here's the truth. Christ Jesus came into this world to save judgmental people, to receive the judgment of God that you might not be judged. That's what we've received in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in that this morning. Trust that Christ came to die for that and repent. Turn from your criticism. Trust in Christ. That he is to judge the living and the dead, as we read in the Apostles' Creed. Let us make judgments that are not condemnations of others, but make adequate and right assessments. Not becoming overly critical, but rather making good and righteous judgments of others. And therefore, do so with discretion. And as we'll see here in verse 6, discernment. Jesus has called us to be salt and light in an unsavory and dark world. Jesus has not called us out of the world. You remember in the high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, Jesus says, I don't take them out of the world. Father, I, I pray that I, I'm not praying for you to, you know, take them out of the world. I'm taking, I'm praying that you would preserve them in the world, that they would be a preservation to this world that is unsavory, that they would be salt in this world. We live in a wicked and dark world. And sometimes we, we are amiss. We, we, we forget the fact that this world is in hostility against the one true and living God. That the systems of this world seek to declare that and to dethrone God. And brothers and sisters, sometimes we, we've, we meet evil face to face. And Jesus equips us here in verse 6 to say that we need to judge sometimes with discernment. We need to have discernment. We need a spirit of discernment. We need to understand when we're just wasting our time and, and when this world seeks to distract us from the mission that God has called us on. Look at what Jesus says here in verse 6. Do not give dogs what is holy. And do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Now, in... In the first century Ju Judaism, 
Dogs weren't cute little fluffy things that you took home and you petted and all that. Uh, they were not domesticated. They were savages. They were despised culturally. And of course, pigs, swine, were despised as well because they were unholy. Uh, they were seen as unclean, and therefore one could not touch them or associate with them. And Jesus here describes those outside of the people of God as dogs and as pigs. In other words, he describes those who are wicked people opposed to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. These aren't your run-of-the-mill non-Christians. These are those who are in open hostility to the things of God. Notice what he says. Those don't give dogs what's holy and don't throw your pearls to pigs. Things that are holy and the pearl of great price, the, 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 the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Calvin says it this way, but by dogs and swines, Jesus means here those who are so thoroughly imbued with a wicked contempt of God that they refuse to accept any remedy. Well, if you've had much occasion to speak to non-Christians, you will find that, that not every non-Christian unbeliever is the same. Some are more uh, militant, uh, more radicalized in their hostility to the things of God. Angry, perhaps, at God. Angered with things of religion. And so they respond with a depth of depravity and wickedness that you don't typically see. And Jesus is telling us that, listen, friend, you live in a wicked world. And so don't be surprised when you see wicked people. I am always surprised when I hear a Christian tell me, I can't believe so-and-so acted that way. I can't believe so-and-so said that. Brothers and sisters, we, you need to have a, a good dose of human depravity understanding to live in this world. You need to understand that this world is depraved, that this world is a fallen world, that our minds are depraved. You want to know how wicked our minds are? I just, this afternoon, read Romans 1 and 2. And you'll think, man, did the Apostle Paul just write that yesterday? Because it's, I mean, men exchanging natural relationships with women for men. And, and women exchanging natural relationships. You, you, you would think that this is yesterday's news. We live in a depraved world, a world that has fallen. And we need to understand that there are wicked people who will oppose the gospel. Brothers and sisters, sadly, so many of us have been influenced by revivalism that we think all we need to do is give a, a compelling call to follow Jesus and someone's going to make a decision for Jesus. We need less decisions for Jesus and we need more repentance for Jesus. And so that's what Jesus is after here. Brothers and sisters, we don't understand that people do not come to faith in Jesus Christ apart from a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus makes this point. And this is hard. This is, a, this is one of Jesus' more tougher teachings. This is what he says. Don't waste your time with those who reject the gospel. This is hard. This is a tough saying, a tough teaching. Jesus' point is this. 
Don't waste your time with those who are vehemently against the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Your responsibility is to sow seed, brother, sister. It isn't to grow the seed. You can no more convince someone to become a Christian than you could convince a car to start without an ignition. You must sow it and trust the Lord will grow it. That's it. It may not grow today or tomorrow or in the next 10 or 20 years, but it may grow if the Lord allows. We have to remember what the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians, that we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are an aroma that brings death and to, uh, to the other an aroma that brings life. Here's, here, here's the point, similar to what Jesus is saying. Listen, in a fallen world, we smell like a rotting corpse. We smell like death. Do you not understand why people don't like church? We stink like a rotting corpse to them. We smell like death. But the Apostle Paul says, but to others. We are the aroma of life unto life. Don't waste your time, brother, sister. Share the gospel, and that's it. Do you not understand that you are, by wasting, by throwing your pearls to pigs, you are in fact falling into a trap of the devil? You are falling into a trap of, of utter distraction where you distract yourself all the time with this one individual when there's a lot of people that need to hear about Jesus. You see, sometimes we're a little overly aggressive in our evangelism. Sometimes we just kind of, we think that we can compel people to come to know Jesus. And if we don't understand the depth of their own depravity, we will also be confused and and thus, look what happens. Lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Friend, persecution is going to come, but sometimes it comes because we're stupid. Because we are overly aggressive with those around us. And many times, for right reasons, we want people to come to know Jesus. Nothing wrong with that. But sometimes we need to trust that this is a supernatural thing. And then we have a responsibility to preach Jesus and trust God. And we need to remember the, tr remember the truth that Jesus gave his disciples in just a couple chapters later. When he says, behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. We need to have discernment. We need to understand when we've hit a roadblock and just turn and go the other way. So many Christians get themselves uh, sucked into arguments and endless debates and, and all of this, all in the name of apologetics and all in the name of trying to defend the faith. Friend, just walk away from that kind of stuff. Share the gospel and move on. We got endless chat rooms and endless Facebook discussion groups. All the while the world is dying. All the while we have homes that need to hear Jesus and, I, look, I, I love a good debate, 
But what we need to invest in is investing in the lives of people here, not debating some dude on Facebook on, on whether or not the Trinity is true or whether. Share the gospel and move on. Cultivate in your life a spirit of discernment. Pray that the sport, the spirit rather, would give you wisdom in your pursuits with an unbelieving world. Is there someone in your life? That, that you just keep sharing the gospel, keep sharing, the, and you are just throwing pearls to pigs. They are hostile to the gospel, and if you don't watch it, they're going to come and get you and attack you. This world is set in hostility to the things of God. We must remember that. We must not retreat from the world, but we must entreat the world. We must take the gospel to the nations, uh, among our family, friends, and neighbors. But let us do it and understand that we will at times meet wickedness face to face. Let us cultivate this for the glory of God. Friends, we are to avoid making overly critical judgments of others, particularly those in the household of faith. But we are to make right judgment, motivated by principle, there in Scripture, and not by personal preference. We are to judge others, both inside and outside the church, with that right, merciful, and gracious spirit that we have received in Christ. And we are also to avoid being tempted to worldly judgmentalism and overly critical thoughts, all the while cultivating in our hearts and lives a discreetness and a discernment in the way we assess others around us. Let us take the logs out of our eyes. Let us look at our own hearts. And then let us go to an unbelieving world with the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would be glorified in all we say and do. Help us to do these things. Help us to fight against judgmentalism. Help us to fight against uh, the, the temptation just to constantly think that we're going to win the world for Jesus apart from the Spirit, apart from the miraculous work of the new birth. Uh, Spirit, we trust that as we sow seed, you will, you will grow it as you see fit. It is for your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.